Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fast talk. Street talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid talk. Hot talk. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The beginning of another week, ladies and gentlemen. It's a blue sky. It's a lovely day out there. It's actually rather spring-like. I feel as if we should have a spring in our step, should we not? After all... uh what have we got to look forward to this week? Oh yeah, uh, there's a load more strikes today. Apparently the NHS has decided that they still aren't happy with the offer that's been made to them uh, by the government. So uh, they're all out on strike. Yeah, that's right. The nurses are out. Uh, the paramedics are out. We've already heard from a few people on picket lines this morning. Uh, none of them seem to be caring whatsoever about the fact that what their actions are doing could indeed harm uh, the general population. They might in fact lead to people dying. They might actually lead to people not getting operations. They might actually lead to people suffering quite a bit. They might actually lead to people not being able to visit uh, their relatives or uh, look forward to anything good in the healthcare department. But what do they care? Because all they want, of course, is more money. And what they don't want is to go out on strike. But they are out on strike, I'm afraid. My sympathy with the nurses is about the same as it was last week. I have no sympathy whatsoever. Uh, We'll be talking later on to little Evie's mother. Uh, You might remember the young lady, uh, eight-year-old, who needs an an operation on her skull. Last time there was a strike, she had a scheduled appointment to have the skull operation to go ahead. Uh, It got cancelled on the same day because they didn't have enough nurses thanks to them being on strike. Today, we are led to believe that the operation is going ahead, but until about an hour ago, the mother and little Evie still didn't know if it was going to happen. So congratulations to you and the NHS uh, for making these young people's lives a misery as they try and figure out exactly how to look forward to the rest of their lives. Brilliant. Uh, We're going to be talking about the Conservative Party this morning as well. Liz Truss uh, put a big article into the Telegraph yesterday, the Sunday Telegraph, 4,000 words of all of it, in which she basically said there was nothing wrong with her ideas, but she was kiboshed uh, by an economic establishment. Not necessarily a lefty economic establishment, an economic establishment nonetheless. I think she has a point. Uh, Unfortunately, though, for her, she just didn't quite have the calibre to see it through. And I think she was very unprepared for the shellacking that she should have known she was going to get. We'll be talking about that, of course, with our first guest, David Bannerman, former Conservative MEP, chairman of the Freedom Association, of course, as well. A man uh, who has said in the past that it was a massive error to get rid of Boris Johnson. We'll find out whether he still believes that. Boris has been talking, of course, in an interview with Nadine Dorries right here on Talk TV at the weekend. We saw Rishi Sunak being interviewed by Piers Morgan last week. Wonder what this week will bring. But seriously, which one of those three people should actually be leading the Tory party? Should it be Rishi? Should it be Boris? Should it be Liz? 
we'll ask you. 0344 499 1000. Also, Peter Hitchens is here. We'll be talking to him. I'll be asking for reparations from the BBC because a BBC journalist has decided that her family was so awful during the slavery times uh, out in the Caribbean that she wants to give 100,000 quid back to Grenada by way of reparations. Well, I've got a better idea. How about the BBC give me some reparations and maybe a few other people for pouring such ludicrous, ghastly, hopeless broadcasting down our throats for the best part of the last 20 years? Absolutely and utterly useless, I'm afraid. Uh, We'll see whether we can win any money from there. We'll be talking about the Chinese uh, barrage balloon that was wandering about uh, over Western America, uh, spying on people, supposedly. Holly Hudson will be on the picket line for us. Annabelle Denham will be here to tell us why actually public sector workers are doing rather better uh, than they should be. And, of course, LaDonna Harvey joins us as well. I'm really, really loath to mention this story, but the story which has been all over the papers all weekend, all about Prince Harry uh, and the woman from Wiltshire who took his virginity. It's all a bit tawdry, it's all a bit ghastly, but of course, um, we know how he hates invading other people's privacy. Seems to have done it rather badly here, doesn't he? 0344 499 is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let us get it on. Funny enough, we had the Grammy Awards last night, which we'll also mention with uh, LaDonna Harvey, and they all started making fun of Prince Harry, for heaven's sake. Also been hearing that uh, both he and the lovely Meghan Markle were not invited to a recent party at Oprah Winfrey's gaff. I wonder why. I wonder if she's worked out that they've just used her and put her in a terrible place. We shall see. Also, of course, we will bring you updates on what's going on in Turkey. There's been a terrible earthquake there. Uh, the Turkish city of Gaziantep has the highest death toll so far. Uh, it could be hundreds and hundreds of people uh, dead, as far as we know. 660 killed, 7.8 um, magnitude earthquake hitting Turkey. So we'll keep you updated on all of that, of course. And everybody hopes and prays that that number doesn't go too high and that the rescue workers there can, uh, if they're able to, to rescue some people who might still be alive amidst the rubble. But uh, a very bad and very terrible way to start Monday morning for people, obviously, there in Turkey. In fact, I've just been told the death toll is up to 912. So we'll keep you updated on that. But let's say a very good morning, first of all, here to kick things off. David Bannerman is with us, former Conservative MEP, Chairman of the Freedom Association. David, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Interesting time to be a member of the Tory party these days. It's not clear precisely where the Conservatives have gone, really, is it? Um, and we've sort of got no. a couple of people jockeying for position. Boris Johnson last week um, making sort of a nuisance of himself, if you like, talking to Nadine Dorries, going out to Ukraine, um, making various pronouncements on what he would do, what he might do, what he should do. Rishi Sunak also giving interviews. Liz Truss finally emerging on Sunday, talking about how she was kiboshed by the establishment. Um, what's going on? <laughs> Well, obviously, Mike, it's not a great time for the Conservatives at the moment. Um, that's pretty obvious. Um, well, I, I like to point out, you know, when Boris resigned, he mentions in his resignation speech, we were 2% behind in the polls. And now we're down to about 30% mm. behind um, Labour. I mean, it's a terrible position. I don't think Boris is jockeying. Uh, by the way, congratulations to Nadine. Great to, great to have her on yes, the show. Yes, absolutely. Really good one. Um no, I, I mean, there, there is an agenda going on here. I mean, obviously, Liz Truss is back in town uh, and she's right. I, I think her economic policies were right. But as she said, it was too far, too fast. And the establishment were determined to bring it down, including the political establishment, of mm. course, who uh, only had the support of one third of MPs. She had the support of the members of the party. 
which is why, you know, I'm, I'm chairman of the CDO, the Conservative Democratic Organization. And we're trying to increase the, the voice, the power of the membership, uh, because they're being overridden far too often. Well, that's the trouble, isn't it? I mean, you know, you had two uh, party political leaders, one in Boris Johnson who was removed. Um, you could argue until the cows come home whether that was a good idea or not, I suppose, but it's happened and so we might as well move on. Rishi Sunak then stands for prime minister, loses um, and somehow becomes prime minister. You know, so the Tory party doesn't look great at the moment. I, I, I mean, I think the members are pretty appalled at the fact we've had a, a basically an appointed prime minister it's not a sort of anti-sunak point it's it's you know the way it was done was wrong the anti-democratic manner as you say he lost two months before to liz um the, the members weren't consulted uh, properly they didn't have a vote on it um and it's really down to the mps that sort of put him there and that's not good for him because now when you know when you, you're in the middle of a storm People say, well, you're pretty illegitimate, mm. but it can't membership anyway, and that doesn't help him. No, it doesn't. And what do you make of Rishi Sunak? I mean, we had the 100 days uh, sort of celebration, if you want, for want of a better phrase, last week. Um, it's not that clear whether he's in any way doing anything. I mean, people kept say, asking him, you know, what's your biggest achievement yeah. in the 100 days? He doesn't really have one, does he? I'm afraid I think there's massive frustration building up um, about the Sunak government because, you know, we're in this dire position where, uh, you know, huge numbers of Conservative MPs will be wiped out at the next election if we go go on like this with these dire polls. Um, I, I note the fact that, you know, all the policies that he put forward against Liz Truss have just been dropped and, mm. and wiped the state wiped pretty clean. And so we're, we're left in a position where we don't know what the government policy is. No one's voted for it. Uh, Boris was the last prime minister who went to the country with a manifesto. Uh, and, uh, you know, hence that does put him in a, a, a strong position for a return. If the polls are dire and, and the local election results are dire, I should say, you know, I fully support good, hardworking, conservative candidates and we've got to look after them and do our best to keep them there. But, I mean, this is not looking uh, not looking good at all for the Conservatives. Well, it's not. And, I mean, he keeps making noises about, you know, stopping the small boats from coming, bringing down inflation, bringing down the NHS um, waiting list times and all of that. This weekend he was talking about doing away with our affiliation to the European Court of Human Rights. Um, but nobody really believes a word he says, do they? Uh, well, it's up to the public. I, I mean, it's reflected in the polling, isn't it? Um I, I, I don't know, Mike. I mean, I think the uh, European Court of Human Rights issue is very important. Um, and he's right to look at that, uh, whether we should leave or not. I mean, you know, the Bill of Rights that Dominic Rabb was bringing forward actually is a sort of middle step, which is worth having. But I think there is a long term question about whether we should just leave the European Court of Human Rights anyway. Lawyers mm. actually wrote the convention in the first place to give the rest of Europe the 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 freedoms we we already enjoyed well, and uh, you know uh, and it's like well hang on what what are these foreign judges including a Russian judge uh, you know in the European court um, you know what are they do they really have a role telling us what to do about our human rights anymore and you know giving votes to prisoners for example no 
Well, it does seem rather daft, doesn't it? A bit like the United Nations and the you know, Security Council, where you've got Russia and China sitting on it, whereby nobody can ever actually do anything uh, that they don't want anybody to do. It makes it a laughing stock. And why anybody would take any notice of either of those you know, fine organs, I really don't know. But as far as you know, the next sort of few weeks go, you talk to probably more conservative uh, grassroots members than most people. And what are they actually saying? What are they? Are they hopeful? Are they saying that you know, hopefully he can turn it round? Do they think he can turn it round? I, I, I must admit, I, I you know, I, <laughs> I've been in politics a long time. I remember 1997. I remember being out of power for 13 years. And what I would say to any conservatives listening is, for heaven's sake, we can't be complacent. We can't assume that you know we can just hand over to Starmer for one term and then come back and triumph. You know, getting our act together. That's not going to happen. It could be two terms. It could be 13 years, like under Blair. We've got to pull this round, and, and, and we've got to get our act together. I think, you know, the Liz Trust agenda is important in terms of policy because, you know, economic growth uh, was very high in 2022. We, we led the G7. That, that's not often not reported. But now it's, it's crashing to 0.3%, and we do need those pro-growth policies We've got to stop the rises in corporation tax, which are planned in the finance bill, Mm. 25%. You know, that's totally counterproductive in this climate. We've got to keep business and fight for business. Uh, And so I think that sort of low tax, you know, true conservative values, uh, those policy initiatives that Liz Truss has touched upon are very important uh, and must be addressed. Yes, absolutely right. Stay with us if you could, David. We've got a couple of other things to get it stuck into, including, of course, the bonfire of EU regulations. We've heard about it many times, but it never actually does seem to happen, does it? 0344 499 1000 is the number. We're talking to David Bannerman. Uh, We're kicking things off this morning uh, with a question for everyone. You know, what on earth is Rishi Sunak up to? And when is he going to tell us what's happening? This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. On DAB+, Plus, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Glad to see you've recovered, Mike, says uh, Mr. Steve. Sunak should be out the door. He's wrecking our country to run away to America. Liz had the right policies, but the wrong team around her. She and Kwasi uh, were the only people to mention IR35. Uh, if we get Boris, we unfortunately have Stanley. Uh, well, maybe so. Uh, Angie says, David talks a lot of sense, as you do, Mike. My feelings are that Boris earned his place as Prime Minister and should be still there. Liz will cause further division, but I don't blame her for speaking out. Well, that's what it says on the front of the Times this morning, delusional trust will cost votes, Tories fear. We're talking to David Bannerman, former Conservative MEP, Chairman of the Freedom Association. David, um, let's talk about Brexit. Let's talk about um, uh, the bonfire of the EU regulations. I I was looking at one of your tweets this morning in which you say, we've escaped an incredible 25,163 EU laws just since we left. I mean, that's an extraordinary figure. Because there was an awful lot, wasn't there, of dredging up of the old... uh, uh, the old battle wounds last week when we had the third anniversary of Brexit. The Ramonas are still yeah. out there remoning. Yeah. Uh, the rejoiners are now rejoining. You know, everybody's saying that Brexit yeah. was a terrible idea. Nobody can tell you what the good things are about it. But, well, this is a good thing. We didn't know about this, did we? 25,000 new laws. No, I, I know it's staggering, actually. Uh, and it's right because, you know, I was an MEP. I, I tried to improve some of these laws. We were outnumbered, outgunned all the time. Uh, and we're stuck with them. And it's actually since we joined, you see the other statistic is, you know, we've got about sort of quarter of a million laws from the EU has been churned out. It's like a sausage factory, the EU, of of, of legislation. 
and we have to sort of follow it. Well, we don't now. We're out. And and uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, his bill is uh, the retained EU law bill. It will get rid of about 4,000 of these laws or, or uh, you know, you can sort of change them if you want to keep them or get rid of them altogether. It's very, very important to our economy. I mean, one of them is worth about 100 billion. Right. The solve two uh, regulation, very important to the city. It will it will allow insurance companies to invest about 100 billion more. Uh, because it's not so restrictive as it would be under the EU. Uh, and that's some huge gain. And yeah. the government is bringing forward a white paper on that. And also, isn't it interesting that, you know, since we have left, you know, there are plenty of people that you can find on any number of, you know, much less worthy um, uh, broadcasting outlets than this one, uh, oh, banging on and on about how awful it all is since we left the European Union. Actually, I don't feel as though the EU even exists in my head anymore. It's just not even there. It's not important. It doesn't, you know, you don't read anything about it. You don't hear anything about it. I don't know what they do. I don't know what they spend all the money on every single day of every single well, year. I mean, yeah. it literally it literally has no political impact in the world, it seems to me, anymore. I, I think it's lost a lot of momentum. I mean, we're about to join, with all being well, the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. And that is a bigger trade block than the entire EU. Uh, let's remember that, you know, the world is changing and where is growth? It's in uh, the Asia Pacific region. And we can be part of that, not the rather sort of uh, slow uh, going backwards mm. of uh, uh, Europe, I'm afraid. There's, the trade block there is actually becoming quite small relative yeah. to the rest of the world. And also, can we not actually be honest? Uh, uh, by, the way, by the way, uh, uh, another point, sorry, that Jacob uh, Rees-Mogg has mentioned again is that he's worked out, you know, that we've saved the, on the EU COVID bill £191 billion. Pounds. Mm. It's almost a, a one and a half NHSs uh, of annual spending we've saved from not being part of the EU. We would have had to pay uh, that massive figure, £191 billion, to, uh, towards the mm. EU COVID bill to help everyone else. Yeah, right. And I mean, all of their recovery plans are no better than ours. Their uh, economies are in not any better shape than ours. Their, you know, exports and imports uh, scenarios are not any better than ours. You know, the only thing that seems to be going on really uh, is a sort of slight petulance from some countries like France, which is making it more difficult for people to go there, like Spain, which is making it a bit more difficult for people to live there. All of these things being driven by the EU rather than by us. The point uh, pointed out yesterday was quite interesting that, of course, we were never in Schengen, which is a sort of free movement uh, within the EU. Mm. We'd be having to do this anyway, actually, whether we're in the EU or not. So it isn't actually relevant to Brexit in that sense. And do we really worry when we go to America, for example? You know, it's very, very similar to the American system. Do we worry about that? Does that stop us going to... Uh, you know, to the United States, to New York, or Florida, or whatever. No, it doesn't. I mean, it's a very minor thing. It might be a minor in, uh, irritation. Uh, but, you know, what what a small price to pay for all the sovereignty and all the benefits in terms of massive savings mm. and free trade deals and, and uh, you know, free ports, you know, which 75,000 jobs for two free ports only in Scotland, 75,000. Right. Well, no, I mean... Big, Exactly right. And I mean, the Scots have gone a bit quiet on EU membership as well, haven't they? Ever since Nicola Sturgeon decided to shoot herself in the foot uh, over that trans prisoner. Uh, I see that her um, uh, popularity rating has now dipped into the minuses for the first time ever. Yeah. It, well, it's good to see it. She made a huge uh, mistake there. But, you know, she's incredibly dangerous. Her mm. government incredibly dangerous. You know, 
this is like 1984 mm. and some of the stuff it it really is appalling um i saw saw actually that uh, support for the union has increased by six percent it's now 53 percent yeah seven uh quite recently so it's having an effect and i gather there was a rally in glasgow uh where there's a lot of anger expressed mm. at the SNP and sturgeon I don't think she's long for this political world. I think uh, she's going to have to go, actually, pretty shortly. Yeah. No, I think it feels very much like that, doesn't it? It feels like this ridiculous kind of uh, ludicrous statement that she made, which was basically that anybody can be anything they want as long as they want to be it, um, and then contradicted yeah. herself in one interview, that one particular interview, which was ex exquisitely um, hopeless in its way, uh, where she couldn't explain why somebody who was a trans woman couldn't go to a men's prison. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, it's 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 almost if it, if it wasn't so unpleasant. I mean, you know, convicted rapist being allowed loose in a women's uh, uh, prison still with his apparatus, uh, you know, intact. I mean, it, it, it's really appalling. Yeah. And I think people have just thought this has become uh, extreme, uh, you know, and, and unacceptable, yeah. quite right. Yeah, I think so. And and if it means that the union is stronger, then, then so much uh, the better, really, for the rest of us. But what's your, finally, yeah. David, what's your sort of best hope for this Tory party? What can somebody do? Can somebody emerge from the uh, the ashes of it? Because it does seem to be very much a kind of uh, one of those trains that's kind of been on fire, but it's still sort of going down the track and nobody's quite sure where it's going to end up. There's not sure if anybody's driving it. You know, there's not much on it. What is actually going to be the best case scenario over the next year for Rishi Sunak and the Tory party? Well, I, I mean, I'm chairman of the Conservative Democratic Organisation, CDO, and we believe in the members. And if you give the power back to the members, let them choose... I think you'll end up with more centre-right policies, you know, lower tax, for example, yeah. where the members want to be. And I think there will be a challenge after May. Um, you know, if, if Sunak doesn't raise his game, to be honest, uh, and, and we get a clear idea of where he's heading and, and that, that, you know, that destination is truly conservative, then there could be a challenge after the locals. And there was a story about the 1922 committee changing the rules to allow that to happen um which you know could be very serious there could be some high drama and i wouldn't rule out boris johnson returning he was a remarkable individual look at look at him and he's still commanding huge presence yeah. in washington ukraine uh you know real leadership to be honest a natural leader and you know i don't know if he wants to stand i you know it's down to them it should be down to the members whether he comes back or not uh, and I think the MPs, though, what will change in this, the MPs, if we have a disastrous polling carrying on, the MPs are going to see the cliff edge and it's going to be that much closer. And to me, they'll want to bring back an election winner, proven mm. election winner, who was, you know, just dismissed over cake. Uh, you know, Eastern Europe is appalled that, you know, it's not corruption, it's cake. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose there will be those who would say it was a bit more than cake, but I take your point. But maybe he is the man to unite the party. Maybe he is the unity candidate. Boris Johnson, does he make a return, triumphantly or otherwise? David Bannerman there, former Conservative MEP, chairman of the Freedom Association, of course, as well. Uh, much more to do 
with us and with you. We're going to bring you updates all through the show, of course, this morning uh, from that terrible earthquake which has hit Turkey and Syria overnight, 7.8 magnitude. Uh, the death toll now rising uh, over 1,000 now. 1,200 uh, people said to have died. Uh, Britain stands by to do whatever we can to help, according to uh, people in the government. We'll see what's going on uh, throughout the course of the show this morning. Coming up, though, uh, we are going to talk, of course, some more about the return or the possible return uh, of Boris Johnson, uh, whether Liz Truss is indeed delusional. Sir Gerald Howard, former Defence Minister, former Conservative MP, uh, will tell us what he makes of what should be going on. Plus, also, we'll be talking about reparations because a woman who works for the BBC wants to give a load of money back uh, to Grenada, to people in Grenada, because she says uh, that she and her family um, wrongly profited from slavery hundreds of years ago. So she wants to give 100,000 quid. Well, how about this? How about we get some reparations from the BBC for being useless for so many years and for wasting so much of our money? Millions and millions and millions of pounds. We could be onto something here. We'll get a lawyer involved as well. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots going on this morning. We've got many of you to talk to and we will get to all of you. 0344 499 1000. There's another NHS strike going on, of course. Uh, if you are planning to try and get anything done by the NHS today, we'd love to hear from you, whether it's been interrupted, whether you've been told not to bother, uh, if you're trying to get into a hospital but you can't because of a strike, because of a picket line, uh, we need to hear your stories, please, today. 0344 499 1000. We're also talking about Liz Truss. Uh, she wrote at the weekend about how she was basically denied the right to make her prime ministerial debut work properly because the economic uh, establishment was against her, completely and utterly didn't give her a chance did not give her uh, the tools to finish the job. However, some Tories now say that she could cost them the election. Well, surely Rishi Sunak could cost them the election. And you just heard from David Bannerman there uh, saying, well, maybe Boris Johnson is the answer. Very possibly still. Let's talk to Sir Gerald Howarth, former Defence Minister and former Conservative MP, of course, as well. Sir Gerald, a very good morning to you. Well, good morning uh, to the uh, Republic of Mike Graham. It's always a pleasure to... Um be part of your uh, Indeed. Debate. Well, very nice to have you here. Um, there's a lot of people talking about Liz Truss, about Rishi Sunak, about Boris Johnson. The Tory party seems to be a sort of a slightly three-headed beast at the moment. Not quite sure which direction it's heading in, not quite sure where to go next. What do you make of it all? Well, the truth is we've been hit by um, a number of major, uh, major problems. The first, of course, was the, uh, the COVID, the um, the uh, pandemic which arose out of uh, the People's Republic of China. Mm. Second was the invasion of uh, Ukraine. And the third was the cost of living crisis, which was a knock on from those former two. And these are pretty unprecedented times of politicians. We have two major parties in this country. They're both coalitions. And there is a debate in those parties about how best you deliver what you want. Now, the good news is that the common ground between all Conservatives, and I think wider across the country as well, is that we want to see the British economy grow. And there are differences of view on how that can be achieved. Mm. And my personal view is that uh, having sat through the 1980s when Nigel Lawson incrementally uh, reduced personal taxation, that delivered not only more revenue, but encouraged people to keep more money in their own pockets, spend it as they wanted, that was a virtue. And uh, it seems to me that the, uh, there's a lot of misgivings about this high tax, high spend policy um, that is predominating at the moment. And there's no doubt, in my view, uh, looking forward, not looking back, 
But looking forward, uh, we, we've got to recognise that um, this is the, the uh, British government is the only institution where the finance director has a veto. Mm. The Treasury orthodoxy uh, is very clear, and I think it's very difficult for uh, any chancellor or any prime minister to try to break out of uh, that orthodoxy. And, uh, of course, we saw the consequences with what uh, happened to uh, Liz Truss. But that debate going forward is a perfectly legitimate debate about how we deliver what the government itself wants and we all want, which is growth in the economy. And there are quite a lot of us as a new conservative growth group being established in Parliament. What we want to see is policies which reduce taxation, which encourage enterprise. And at the same time, to do that, you've got to cut government expenditure. Mm. We've got to make people less dependent upon the state. Yes. We have become incredibly dependent on the state, haven't we? I mean, you now hear people all the time. I was listening to um, a radio phone-in programme the other day on a much less auspicious channel than this one, where people were moaning on about how, oh, my mortgage has gone up £300 a, a year, a week, a month, rather. You know, I don't know, it's not fair. This government should have protected me. And you go, well, sorry. You know, there was a time when those of us who bought houses uh, didn't actually expect to make a bucket load of money from them. There was always a chance that if you took out a mortgage, it might go up, it might go down. The sale of the house might not be uh, straightforward. You might end up uh, taking a gamble and losing. You know, people seem to think the government should be bailing them out for everything now. And I don't know where we got that from. That's entirely true. We got it through uh, easy living, both yeah. in terms and international terms. We've had easy living with house prices going up, mortgage rates going down to virtually zero, mm. certainly the Bank of England uh, base rate going down to uh, zero. And I think that has encouraged people to feel a false sense of security. And yeah. if you talk to people like John Redwood, as I did last week at our wonderful 1922 committee centenary dinner, and he lays the, the, the blame firmly at the door of the Bank of England, not mm. the British government. And yeah. there are forces there which are beyond government control. I say to people, this cost of living crisis, yes, as Sir John Redwood would argue, uh, is down in part to the Bank of England, but it owes one hell of a lot also uh, to what the the Chinese did in terms of locking down mm. production, which drove up the cost of that which was being produced, as we all had to stay at home. And secondly, uh, what Putin has done in Ukraine has driven up oil prices, and the price of fuel affects absolutely everything. And it's also driven up the cost of uh, food. Now, the good news is those huge increases which took place in the aftermath of the Ukraine uh, invasion uh, are set to fall out of the inflation mm. calculator. So I think we could be seeing a fall in uh, in the inflation rate fairly soon. And I, I think that will give people hope. Yes. But that is what we've got to do. The government's got to give people hope. And it's also got to make it clear to them, you cannot rely upon the government bailing you out for everything. No. But people have to do some of these things for themselves. But that's exactly right. You know, why don't we forget about supply-side economics for a while and talk about demand-side economics? Because, you know, if people put their prices up so high that you can't afford them, well, maybe you stop buying whatever it is they're selling you. You know, and I realise that you can't do that with everything, but you can certainly do it with a lot of things. And if somebody says to you, you know, a can of beans is now going to cost you two quid instead of one, well, so don't buy it then. And then watch them bring the price back down until you can afford it. You know, that's the way economics is supposed to work. Not to, for you to go to the government and say, can I have an extra pound, please? Oh, I know, you can tax that guy over there too. Two pounds, you give me one of his quids, and then you can both afford to buy some beans. You know, it doesn't make any yeah. sense. Absolutely. And when, when, it, when, of course, the cost of fuel goes up, uh, you do what I've done. We put a sweater on. Uh, you turn the heating down. Yeah. We have 
beyond 15 and I'm regularly going to turn it in during the day, make sure that it's not coming on automatically upstairs. Right. And there are things that people can do for themselves. But can I say something else, Mike? It's not just that we become uh, comfortable at home. We've been comfortable abroad as well. And we have seen uh, the uh, particularly Russia engaged in successive acts of uh, of uh, conflict where they have annexed other people's territory. First of all, Georgia in 2008, Ukraine in 2014, uh, and now Ukraine, mm. uh, sorry, Crimea in 2014 and Ukraine uh, now. And we have allowed this dictator to act with complete impunity. And we see a growing assertiveness in China. And I think that it is time that we had a proper strategy in this country, a really hard look a strategic look at the world situation and what are the threats and what do we need to do about it. And mm. my view is, first and foremost, we have to reduce our reliance on China. Yeah. We've all accepted that we have to reduce our reliance on Russian oil and gas. Well, let us now turn our attention and reduce our reliance on goods manufactured in China. Let's stop making those goods, if not in the United Kingdom, in countries which are very clearly allies. Yes, and let's just stop making lots of people rich by subsidising what it is that they're selling us. You know, that would help as well. You know, a lot of people are very fed up with the whole net zero business, which this government has been pushing now ever since Boris Johnson got in, and probably, probably before that. You know, and there are now times, surely, to look around and go, really, is that what you think the future is going to hold? Is that really where you should be putting uh, your our money? I don't think so. Absolutely, entirely agree with you. I think the obsession with net zero, where the United Kingdom contributes 1% of global uh, emissions, whilst China is not just pumping out it, it, eternally increasing emissions, but building new mm. coal power stations every month. Uh, I think that it is absurd, and I've had the, taken this view for a long time, that I was not prepared to sacrifice my constituents on the altar of net zero, mm. Uh, whilst other countries did absolutely nothing uh, to reduce their emissions. And I think that um, it's actually very dangerous. I think also there's another factor. I don't want to see our fields covered with solar panels. No. Anymore. Or wind turbines. Wind, let, let us, uh, let us uh, uh, set about, as the government has done, it's got a new um, agricultural strategy. At last, it's, it's come up with its um, ELMS um of course, a slightly uh, unfortunate connotation with uh, uh, elm disease mm. uh, dieback. Nevertheless, they've come up with some statistic, uh, some, some some practical solutions uh, to replace the common agricultural policy. I see my I see of country life that this has been quite widely welcomed. Yeah. But what we what the land in this country, what the fields around me here in Suffolk should be doing is producing food for our people, mm. so we become less reliant on food from overseas, not to put to, to put solar panels everywhere, which only work when the sun's shining. Admittedly, it's shining now, but the wind doesn't blow all the time and the sun doesn't shine all the time in the United Kingdom. So we have to have a base fuel, and this was always the policy when I was in the Department of, Environment, of Energy with uh, Cecil Parkinson and the Thatcher government. Uh, it was our policy then to have diversity of, uh, of energy supply. Mm. So we were never dependent upon one source alone. And the truth is that um, renewables do not produce uh, the baseload that the country needs. We are going to be reliant upon fossil fuel for the foreseeable future, and we need to make sure 
that that fossil fuel is available to us, preferably extracted from the North Sea and our own country. Well, extracted, yeah, absolutely. Locally, makes perfect sense. Uh, great to talk to you. Very good indeed. Sir Gerald Howarth, former Defence Minister, Conservative, Conservative MP as well. And of course, a man that speaks an awful lot of sense. In the independent republic, that's what we do. That is our stock in trade. That is our uh, complete and utter mantra here. Uh, you don't get to come on here unless you speak common sense. And if you do come on here and fail to speak common sense, I'm afraid, we will be picking you up on it. Just so that you know, by the way, uh, about the whole net zero madness, here's another one for you to sort of wind you up. £7.5 million was paid out by the police to police Just Stop Oil protests in one uh, nine-week period last year. £7.5 million, right? You could have had 150 police officers for a whole year for that. But no, instead, we're having to police uh, the great unwashed, gluing themselves to things and giving them cups of tea. Brilliant, isn't it? £7.5 million. Quid. What an absolute shambles. This is Talk TV. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk, Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Well, uh, we've been spending the first hour uh, wondering whether or not I can get any reparations from the BBC. Uh, Peter Hitchens is here. He may have some ideas for me as to how we can go about doing that. Uh, my reparations are, of course, uh, for the terrible pain and suffering I've been forced to endure uh, by listening and watching various broadcasts over the course of several years, some of which have been quite plainly awful. Uh, so I want some money. Why is everybody else is getting reparations? Why should I not have some of my own? Uh, coming up, we'll be talking about the uselessness or otherwise of masks. We'll be talking about why uh, being tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime uh, was the reason it all went horribly wrong. And also, we'll talk a little bit about Big Brother Watch because unfortunately I missed my encounter with uh, Peter last week due to my lurgy. Uh, however, I'm now back uh, for firing in all cylinders, so we'll talk a bit about that. Also, we have been talking about Liz Trust. Should she still be Prime Minister? Would we ever have her back? What about Rishi Sunak? What sort of job is he doing? And Boris Johnson is circling a bit like a sort of one of those uh, sharks that's been slightly wounded. Uh, is he going to really come back? Could he? Do you want him to? 0344 499 1000 is the number. Uh, this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let us get it on. Time to say a very good morning to Peter Hitchens. Very nice to see you. Sorry about last week. Well, I'm, I'm, glad, you're, I'm glad you're well again. Yes, well, you're, so am I. Your voice is functioning. Well, I was one, I'm, I'm one of those... I'm not very good at being ill, I'm afraid, because I don't yeah. get ill very often. And whenever I do, I sort of I sort of resemble a bear in a, in a cave, and I just don't want to talk I'm to anybody. I'm glad I missed that. Yeah, I just sort of disappear off and hibernate and come back out when I'm feeling better. People who try to be nice to me inevitably get insulted. And well, I'll promise not, terrible to, things not to make that mistake if I ever find you in a <laughs> but, it was an inter- but it was a very... I was looking forward to talking to you last week because there was so much to talk about, particularly Big Brother, Big Brother which, yeah. we'll, which we'll come back to. Um, but let's talk about a couple of other things first because you, you wrote this weekend about the terrible crime situation in this country, which, which was sort of predicated by that probation story. Well, it's extraordinary. And there was the Labour Party trying to make yeah. political capital about the fact that crime is bad, that, that, that several horrible crimes are committed each week, mm. um, murders and rapes, by people out on probation. And, of course, we had for a long time the, 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 the horrible fact that quite a lot of people who commit murders have actually been released early from, yeah. from, from sentences for mm. homicide. Uh, but these things are really are not something that the Labour Party can make any capital. 
capital out of. I know no political party, I'm not being a propagandist for the Tories in this, because they, they have in their own way been just as bad, mm. but no political party uh, is, is, in, is in any position to say this, because particularly after the 1960s, and particularly after the Wilson government, pretty much eviscerated the criminal justice system and also began the process of removing the police from the streets. What's happened has been that the, the, the crime has ceased to be an abnormal, unusual thing to be recorded and deplored and become so normal that people don't bother to report it anymore and the authorities don't bother to record it. Right, or investigate. So, so claims, ridiculous claims were made during the New Labour era that they got crime down. All happened, and we discovered this, and there, there was a, a, some very thoughtful academic research and eventually confirmed by House of Commons Committee that what was happening was the police were simply not recording crimes, mm. which previously would have been recorded. So what they've done is they've, they've decrimed large numbers of things, shoplifting, yeah. uh, burglary, uh, car theft... Mm. Uh, they've practically ceased to be crimes because nobody does anything yeah. about them. And, of course, the other thing they've decrimed, which is the possession of dangerous drugs, yeah. which they, they barely bother to touch anymore. And so they pretend by doing this that they've created a society in which there is less crime. What they've actually created is a society in which there is less law enforcement. Right. And where there is more crime, actually, probably. Well, of course. And because pe the people who suffer from this tend not to be people like you and me in, mm. in prominent positions or well-off people or powerful people. They tend to be poor people living in the rougher areas of town. Yeah. They suffer. They have nowhere to go. They know if they call the police, they almost certainly won't come. And so what is there to report? Mm. And in many cases, they don't have much in the way of insurance, so they don't even need crime numbers. So here we have a very large part of the population subjected also to what is called called antisocial behaviour, absolute misery of, mm. of, of neighbours who, 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 who treat them badly and against whom they have no defence, right. and nothing being done about mm. it. And the slogan of the Labour Party at the, in the 1997 election, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, so many people took it at face value. They were never actually tough on crime mm. at all. They didn't believe in it. But their, their view was that crime was caused, and this is the standard left-wing view, by social conditions, by poverty, by bad yeah. housing, by people not being able to afford things they need. This is absolutely and demonstrably not true. In the 1920s and 1930s, millions of people in this country lived lives of such poverty and deprivation that, that people confronted with them in our times would throw their hands up in horror. Even people who now consider themselves comparatively mm. badly off and are badly off yeah. could not imagine the housing conditions, the shortage of food, the general lack of of anything to, to, to give them health or pleasure, that millions of people went through, and they did not turn to crime. No, they didn't. There were several. No, you wrote very interestingly about that that period of time with with the proviso that you know they one not only did they not turn to crime, but you know people actually knew who the criminals were in a way, and being a criminal in some ways was was a terrible stain on your character, well, which it sort of isn't now. Children were brought up very differently, yeah. and, and there was also much stronger family life, and the, the ch ch children were not so much afraid if the police came around and said uh, that little Billy had been, mm. been vandalising a fence. The children were much more afraid of, of what their fathers yes. might do than they were of the police, and mm. that was the way it was. And people say, oh, well, this was terrible. I say, you have to choose. Do you want a society in which there is no... There is no Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. The parental authority in which the police have no authority and they only turn up afterwards. Uh, and in which there is an awful lot of crime and disorder and antisocial behavior and people have their lives ruined and they're driven mad and sometimes driven to suicide yeah. by, by bad behavior by neighbors? Or would you prefer a society in which you, you paid another price, the price of, of, of stronger family life, of stronger fathers, of, of, uh, of, of a police presence, of the police having more power to act individually, in which there were less of these things? And I say, and I, I wrote a book about this called The Abolition of Liberty, I say we would be a freer, and happier and more prosperous society if we accepted that you, you have to pay mm. a certain price for all of it. Japan still pays it. Uh, Japan is still a much more orderly society in which bad behavior is hugely disapproved mm. of. And, and the, the, the people you have most to fear from if you commit crime are your family. Yeah. And they, they, people really can't stand it. And it, as a result, it is a much, much more orderly society. And the police in those societies are allies of the public. Yeah. Whereas in the society created by the liberals in the 1960s, the police have oddly ceased to be our allies, and they've become a sort of separate force who, who well, refer to us as civilians. Yeah, and, and, we've, and we've seen, uh, haven't we, so many examples lately of, of police who have been very happy to come and knock on somebody's door as a result of something they may have posted on a social media site than they are if you've actually called in a burglary. Well, yeah, there is that as well, and right? it's, it's very disturbing. But the, 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 the real problem is this. Once the police cease to do what we set them up for, which is to patrol actively, uh, making their presence felt and letting people know they're mm. there, and if, once they instead take to reacting to crime, it very rapidly becomes impossible to control. As so many people are ringing them up asking for help. They can't conceivably keep up with it. No. And that happened many years ago. Mm. The police but, but ceased to be able out, to respond. But we've also gone. not only got the problem there, we've also got the probationary problem where it would seem to me that the, the, the people running probation are being driven by a series of targets so that if they can move somebody from that particular room to another room over here, which means that they're less of a risk, that is seen as a good thing, yeah, I, regardless of whether it's less of a risk. I, the Labour Party do have a point. There was a reform of the probation service a few years ago, which was a complete disaster and yeah. had to be reversed. And it, it was never particularly good, but it became a great deal worse. And mm. this, this is straightforward mismanagement. But probation won't work anyway 
unless at the back of it is the feeling among those who've been convicted of crimes and have been released, that if they go back to crime, the trouble that will fall on them will be so bad that it simply won't be worth it. Mm. At the moment, that's not so. People commit an awful lot of crimes now, uh, and the police pay no attention to them. I would, you have to guess, because there can be, by the nature of it, no figures. I would suggest it's quite possible for someone to commit 20 offences of burglary, vandalism, antisocial behaviour, before the police even take any Mm. notice of them. They then go through the process of cautions, more cautions, and then they have uh, then they have fines which they don't pay and which nobody collects. Then they have community service which they don't do or has no effect on them. Then they have suspended sentences mm. which aren't activated. Finally, by the time any of them do actually get to prison, they are already habitual offenders. Yes. You know, people like um, so it's a kind of nonsense to it, say you shouldn't put them in there because they'll become worse offenders. Because it's not they, the, the reason why people who've been to prison continue to offend is not because prison makes them offenders. It's because they are, for the most part, already That's serious their offenders job, by the time they get there. Yeah. And, and, and except in the cases of homicide and things like that, where people go to prison straight away. Mm. In general, this has happened. So, so, so when you get politicians saying, "Oh well, it's been proved that prison doesn't work." Uh, they're misreading the statistics very seriously. They are, but also it does work, even if it doesn't work in terms of rehabilitation. It works in as much as it takes a dangerous person off the street and puts them somewhere. But that's all. Yeah, but that's something. But now they come again at the the revolving door because the prisons are so full, even despite all this. And the interesting thing is, when we had tougher prisons and tougher sentences and people tended to go to prison for a a second offence of a serious crime, which doesn't really happen now, there were many fewer people in prison Mm. because there was a huge number of people who were capable of committing crime but thought it was stupid because they would be caught and would suffer Mm. from it. That number of people has uh, has now become much more susceptible to crime. And when they do get caught, the prisons are not big enough to hold them. So we're building now more and more of these enormous mm. prisons. But then we can only keep people in them for a few months. And well, they're never going to be them. enough, are they? They can't because the whole process is, is one which creates more criminals. Mm. And it will not... And I mean, building not, building not more prisons by itself will achieve nothing. No. And then when you get to prison, and you and I would find prison an absolutely miserable experience. But for the hardened criminal, mm. the criminals who actually, to a horrible extent, run the prisons, it isn't anything like so no. bad. It's the it's in fact, the worst thing to be in prison is a is, is a wrongly convicted innocent person. Well, but for you and I, we would not want to go to prison. We would fear yeah. going to prison yeah. for all sorts of reasons. But most of the people who do go don't fear it. At a all, lot so. of people don't fear it. I think quite a lot of people are in prison who are who are afraid of it, and I've, I've and I've, I feel for them. I think our prisons should be more disciplined and better run for mm. the sake of them because I don't want prisons to be places of misery and torture. I want mm. them to be places of severe, uh, effective punishment which deters people from committing crime. I don't want them to be places where people are un- undergo total misery. What's the point of that? Mm. Uh, well, I suppose the not, point of that is... Also, I don't believe in long sentences. Well, I, think they're well, not, I was going to say, perhaps the, point, perhaps the point of making it a miserable experience is so that nobody who goes there would ever want to go back. Not miserable. I, I think cruelty is, is always wrong. And, and what do you want to make it is an experience of discipline, order, and obviously of deprivation of some pleasures, which people don't want to repeat. But you don't want people to be living in fear. Mm. And a lot of people in prison are in, are, are in fear. And also the other thing is you don't want to allow drugs into prison. And the, well, the, the, that the, ship because we've allowed sailed. drugs into our society, well, we've lost control of them in prison. Well, it was rather amusing to me when uh, they first brought in the no smoking rules in Scotland. The only place where you could still smoke was actually inside a prison yeah. where you could be sent for smoking. 
Well, obviously, <laughs> I think that would make a lot. I don't think there were many people in prison in Scotland for <laughs> no, smoking. Though, no, but it meant that this. they were the only people who were legally allowed to do it. Anyway, stay with us. We're going to look at something uh, else coming up. We're going to talk some more about uh, this storming uh, of the free speech in this country uh, by uh, what was going on during COVID. Also, uh, we've got some breaking news for you as well uh, on the police search for Nicola Bully. We'll bring you that too. Uh, this is Talk TV on DAB Plus on the app, Talk Radio, and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here uh, on Talk TV. Peter Hitchens is with us. We'll come back to Peter in a moment. But this this morning, uh, we just want to bring you a little bit of breaking news. Specialist divers are helping police uh, in the search for Nicola Bully, uh, the woman who went missing while walking her dog near the River Wire. You're looking at uh, live footage now of a specialist diving team uh, in Lancashire. Um, it's been more than a week now since she disappeared. We will bring you updates, of course, as soon as there are any here. Uh, on Talk TV, the police believe that she may have slipped and fallen into the river. Um, her family say that they don't believe that happened, but they're clearly searching the river now uh, to see whether there's any trace of uh, uh, or evidence of, of something like that that could have happened. It's been a very mysterious story, um, Peter, hasn't it? It's something that it must, it's, yeah. must be awful for the family because it's just not knowing. Uh, it's probably worse than anything, isn't it? I, it's completely terrible. I, I feel... So a desire not to talk about it. Yes. You think well, there isn't really anything to Think of them to sitting say. there, and, and what can they take from people discussing yeah. it? But. No, of course, there's nothing really we can say. Let's talk about uh, Dr. Um, Ellie Cannon, um, because yes, right. uh, you wrote a piece, uh, wrote a tweet this morning about her. She wrote at the weekend in the Mail on Sunday, your paper, um, about face masks, something that she was very much in favour yes. of. She was, and, and uh, the great, one of the great things, the Mail on Sunday published her views on it, and they published mine, I was yeah. against them. So mm. It was exactly what newspapers should do, and exactly what quite a lot of them didn't do. But yes. they, they published her position and mine, and that was absolutely right. And now, to her enormous credit, she's read the Cochrane Review, which was published last week, on all the recent research about face coverings yeah. and it shows that they pretty much don't have any effect right. and uh, she actually had the courage to come out and write well I thought they were great but now here is this research which says they don't work she added probably because it, obviously in these things there's no total certainty but the, the evidence seems to point that way and I thought it was much to her credit that mm. she said so and it would be nicer for a lot of other people who particularly harangued me, as she did not I have to yeah. say, and told me how wicked I was for being against masks, would now say well actually, hang on a minute maybe you had yes. a point uh, there needs There's to be a lot of revision there, of this kind now. There still are some of them out there who when there was a brief kind of encounter, oh, yes. shall we say, a few months back, just before Christmas. In January, it was, yeah, was, 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 was an urge to, to, to restart the mask-wearing yeah. thing. In fact, I'm pretty sure that there were a couple of politicians who said, I think Chris Philp was one of them, uh, that it would be worthwhile wearing a mask if you were going out in public. Oh, the, the, you kind of going, sorry. Immediately, they went, they, they went for it. It's, it is extraordinary. And, but there had already been, let's say, an awful, an awful lot of, well, some very powerful research in, in, in Denmark, which suggested strongly that the, how shall I put it, the case for them was not as good mm. as had been assumed. And the government itself had said before that they weren't up to much right. uh, on the basis of the existing research. So now we have this. Let's say a lot of people, Oh, a lot of other people, apologies mm. for the intolerant, uh, all-knowing, arrogant way in which they treated dissent over the, over the, the government's policy mm. towards COVID. And I'm really, really glad when anybody does it, and I, I heap praise on Ellie Cannon for admitting uh, that something that she had said uh, during the the pandemic turns out to be mistaken. Yes. I think it's great when people do that. I think they should, well, get, be nice they should more... get they should get medals for yes. it. saying saying actually 
I was wrong, or even actually I may have been wrong. It's yeah. so rare mm. that I think it just needs to be praised very, totally. very highly. Totally. And, and wouldn't it be nice if more politicians actually did it? Oh. Apropos of what came out in the mail last week about Big Brother Watch and oh, the extraordinary yeah, lengths to which again, they were going I mean, we do, we, to we, banish you from the airwaves. Well, they, we don't know, you see. What, what Big Brother Watch was very ingenious. They, you know, they did subject access requests and freedom of information, and, and I helped them out a bit, mm. which is how they found out that a government department appeared to have been taking a fairly close look at what I was tweeting yeah. and keeping records of it. Now, what then happened, we, don't, we also know that the government obviously has privileged access to the internet giants. Mm. So what happened then? Was that connected with the way in which I got shadow banned, particularly by YouTube? Mm. And who knows where else during the period of the of the Great Panic when I was actually opposing what was going yeah. on? It was, a, it was a completely fascinating brief flash of lightning on what may and what perhaps was going on which people should take warning from. I say it's continuing, I think. Those of us... Oh, I think so. No those question. Of, those of us who are uh, sceptical about the, the British policy towards Ukraine, for instance, I think are probably experiencing something similar. But we won't find out about that until, until later either. No. Well, I think what Big Brother Watch have rather cleverly highlighted is that there is a strain of government opinion, shall we say, that believes that that is something they should be doing, well, which it really shouldn't be. Certainly when David Davis raised it in the House of Commons last week, the minister who he asked didn't show any particular signs of being embarrassed about no. it. Uh, but we'll wait and see what answer they provide. Mm. It'll probably, like most of these answers, be pretty vague. Yeah. But, uh, so, no, they still haven't really. And I see there was a, there was a, a Tory MP at the time of this uh, who I think held office in the Tory party, who ran a website attacking people mm. uh, who were who were objecting to this? Now, that was Neil O'Brien, wasn't was it? Was it? I, 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 it was I, I, some, somebody terribly unmemorable. Who ended up in the cabinet, funnily enough, because he was working, I believe, at that time for Matt Hancock. He was, oh, he was described yeah. as Matt Hancock's house elf, um, rather amusingly. But yeah, he was—he literally had a, a list of names, yeah, of I, which I, I certainly know Julie Hartley Brewer's name. Oh, I, I'm pretty certain. I and yours like, would have yeah, been as well. But it, and I thought, it's not, he, he was far too connected with government, it seemed to me, f to be doing this. Mm. Government shouldn't monitor, the, however much, what, if, 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 heaven forfend, I were ever in government. If I ever found myself objecting to, uh, to what the press was saying or monitoring what the press was saying about me, I'd know I'd gone seriously wrong. And Enoch Powell's attitude towards, towards politicians who complain about the press was, was most brilliant. Uh, it's like sailors complaining about the sea, <laughs> uh, you, you, if, if, but, which is absolutely the right yes. attitude. But they seem, these, and all these disinformation units that people now set up, right. disinformation means something I disagree with, actually. Yeah. And the BBC has a disinformation. Well, they had a disinformation ca um, uh, correspondent. Didn't they they? Do. I think they still do. She tried to. She, she, she tried to contact me, and I, 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 I said, "Well, hang on a minute. Isn't this did you give bit... us some disinformation?" I said, "Isn't this a bit prejudicial? If you're the disinformation correspondent, isn't merely being contacted by you it's a <laughs> presumption of guilt?" And then I said, "And as a matter of fact, given the way all this is going on, if you could put all your questions in writing, I'll give you my answers in mm. writing." And I never heard back. Interesting. Because I used to get quite incensed on a weekly basis when our interviews would go up on Facebook. And every single time there would be this kind of disclaimer that would appear. Good housekeeping, some seal, of the, seal of disapproval. Yeah, yeah. Some of the information in this um, article may be um, misleading. I was quite outraged. I was like, excuse me, between us we've got a fair amount of journalistic um, yeah. uh, experience and um, we know some stuff. 
and we're talking about things which are debatable. Yeah, so therefore, it, what business is it of yours to I tell us it was, whether I, it might be misleading? I took it as a compliment. I, I, then the, it ended up with the Independent Press Standards Organisation, or whatever it's called. Ipsos. Um, having, uh, uh, actually censoring me for, a, for an opinion. Right. Which is not supposed to do. No. It's a complete uh, breach of the limits. But this is the do. thing that's happened, hasn't it? Because you can't... They, are actually, they have actually said without... Uh, with a straight face, you can't have that opinion. That's that their, was, that's, that was how that's it worked out. View. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't. You it can't was, have it that. was plainly an expression of opinion, and they <laughs> they decided to treat it as if I'd made a statement of fact. Yes, and uh, and they and, and, and therefore they and, and this is ex- quite extraordinary change in the way in, 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 in the way in which uh, all these things are viewed, and a lot of people. Agreed with yes. this and supported. Did it. you not also write this weekend about some event that was cancelled? Yeah, somewhere? well, it's, it's, uh, Speaking it, it, of no, it's a b- bunch of Corbynites were going to hold an anti an anti Ukraine war meeting. It's, it's some of them people with whom I have very little track at all, but the, they were going to hold it at the Conway Hall mm. uh, up in Red Lion Square in the central London Hoburn, a place where I have in fact spoken twice myself. It's generally a, the sort of home of lost causes. Uh, which is presumably why I found myself speaking there, but the the the, the, the hall received a, a huge number of uh, of, of menacing uh, social media posts mm. and I think emails. Uh, we don't know the details of this, and they cancelled the meeting. Yes. The Conway Hall I've always seen as a real fortress of free speech. Whatever it is you wanted to say, you could say it there, yes. but that's not true anymore. No, and that seemed to me to be very worrying because you can't find a place, a platform on which to say something, even if, if 99% of the population think you're wrong, mm. uh, provided it's a, it's a legitimate public opinion and, 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 and not an inc- well, I mean, incitement, you should be able to find yeah. a platform where you can say it. Yes, because the difficulty with what you've just said there, and you'll probably admit this even now, is a legitimate public opinion. I mean, what even is that? Well, it's, what, what, I, what I mean by legitimate... A lawful one, I, I, I mean, I, What I mean by legitimate is I, I, I would not, for instance, um, be... But, Particularly keen to, uh, to 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 defend the freedom of someone who denies the Holocaust, right. nor would I be particularly keen to defend the freedom of somebody who was inciting violence. Mm. I think those are, are limits. Yes. I mean, I go pretty much to the limits of the of the American uh, First Amendment. Mm. Uh, the, they would allow uh, Holocaust denials. Well, America is a much more free country in, in a, a way, weird, in yeah. a weird way than we are. In, in sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. Yeah, and they, the horrible things can happen. Uh, it's still unforgettable that Woodrow Wilson, that great liberal president, locked up Eugene Debs mm. for honestly and openly opposing the, the American involvement in the First World War. Mm. Completely outrageous thing yeah. to have done. So it's not; it doesn't always work. I, I think there. I have to say there are limits for me. I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't jump to the defence of, of the of the people I just mentioned. No. But I do think that ultimately, freedom of speech, not the freedom to incite, for yeah. instance has to be defended. Yes. Um, I was once, rather proudly, actually not particularly proudly, but cancelled. I was supposed to do a show with George Galloway once at uh, the Comedy Store, um, and he had just been found guilty by the Court of Public Opinion of saying something he shouldn't have said, which was deemed to be anti-Semitic. And they, and they said, well, we're not going to put the show on. And I said, well, if you put the show on, I will question him as to what well, he was doing and why he was doing it and just make him justify it. Yeah, well, it but it, we didn't get the chance. A debate whether, whether there's an opposition is slightly different from a, from a meeting mm. where all the people on the platform agree as yes, well. That's, true. An, that's another thing. But sure, yeah. But it didn't help. Was, was the truth ever put to the worst in a fair and open argument? Never. So, no. so you, you, you're quite right. Actually, George Galloway, I think, was one of the speakers at this, at, yes. at, at, at this planned meeting. Right. Well, maybe he's the common factor. Um, final question. What chance have I got, do you think, uh, of getting some reparations out of the BBC? None. Thank you.
just so I check. <laughs> I'm going to try anyway, because it doesn't cost me anything. I'll get one of my friendly lawyers to write them a letter and see what they say. Uh, why not? Might as well waste some more licence fee payers' money. Uh, this is Talk TV. Peter, thank you very much indeed. We'll see you next week. Uh, coming up, uh, we're going to talk about China. Speaking of freedom, uh, Sam Olson joins us. Uh, what are they doing with these balloons, exactly? This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots of you sending lots of really, really interesting little uh, messages in. Uh, of course, we will read them out as soon as we possibly can. Stephen says, uh, a constant stream of marvellous guests speaking common sense and truth as always uh, on the legendary Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, how about this uh, from, um, uh, where is it? Uh, Rishi Sunak. I've said it before and I'll say it again, says Robin. The people of Britain did not want Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister, so to appease the people, they put Liz Truss in, then conspired with vested interests so they could sneak Sunak in by the back door. Strange. Um, and one from somebody who doesn't give a name. Come on, Mike, you've said twice this morning that Evie's operation was called off due to lack of nurses. Well, her last uh, scheduled operation was called off due to lack of nurses. That's entirely true. Um, in his first call to you, her grandfather said to you it was because the surgeons had the wrong plate for her skull. No, that's not true. Uh, the reason that the uh, wrong plate was put in her skull was that the first operation was, in fact, a mistake. And they put the wrong plate in by mistake. So they needed a steel plate to replace it with. And so what happened was they tried to get that the first time around, about a year ago, failed. Uh, so that ca was cancelled. Then it was cancelled again last month due to the strike because it was taking place on a strike day. Um, and then today, the uh, operation looks like it's gone ahead. So that's a good thing. Uh, but it's third time lucky for Paulia Levy. And it was 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock this morning before she even knew that it was going to go ahead. So um, it's not a question of me not say, stating the facts. Those are the facts. It's a shame you didn't give your name because I could have told you uh, that you made a mistake. But never mind. Uh, thanks for sending me that message. Let's talk now, though, uh, instead to Sam Olson, uh, CEO of the Even Star Institute, host of What China Wants. Because, of course, um, people would have watched with interest over the course of the last few days, particularly over the weekend, uh, where there was this um, rather odd looking thing floating above the skies of Montana in the United States of America, believed to have been uh, coming over the skies from Canada uh, into a very remote part of the western United States. It was said to be some kind of Chinese spy um, balloon of one kind or another. Nobody was quite sure what it was doing. Uh, but let's find out from Sam uh, what it's all about. Sam, very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you so much for, for talking to us. I mean, first of all, I suppose, to begin with, why, why not discuss what actually this thing was? that was shot down by, by what appears to be the US military. What, what do you believe it to have been? Well, the full analysis will be done once we've got the results from the Americans after they've collected all the samples that have been uh, shot down. Mm. But uh, it looks on the surface like it was just a, a high altitude uh, weather surveillance balloon, right. exactly as the Chinese say. Um, and and uh, they are quite common. You know, they're they're used by lots of different countries. The, I suppose the difference is is that with China, uh, it is impossible to say that it's just civilian use or just uh, military use. They're always dual use, right. which is different to what perhaps many countries in the West do. So Chinese um, claims that it was just a civilian weather balloon uh, will be false simply because of the dual use nature of virtually all of their scientific infrastructure. Right. And I mean, so this is something that happens on a fairly regular basis, is it? These balloons float around and nobody bothers with them? 
Well, I think in this case, uh, what was interesting is it happened just before uh, the Secretary of State Blinken was meant to be going to America yes. to try and, try and reset uh, China-US relations, which mm. has been going through a real rocky patch in the last few years, as we all know. Um, and the fact that it happened uh, just before he was meant to go and that led to the cancellation of the meeting, that is the most important thing out of this. Uh, but it's not just the Chinese who are, who are pulling this... Uh, who are causing um, ruffle to be made in the media. The Americans have been very much on the attack. And I know that there have been accusations that the Americans are, on their part, using the whole debacle uh, as an excuse to uh, to raise tensions yet more with the Chinese. Right. And so, I mean, at the moment, uh, tensions are quite high from what we understand inside of China as well, because President Xi has been sort of under quite a bit of fire, hasn't he? Not least from some of the demonstrations that have taken place, from some of the COVID policies that have perhaps not turned out as well as they should have done. What's his position like at the moment? Well, I would I would urge caution in terms of saying that they're, they're under a lot of pressure because um, he, she, President Xi has the last um, decade or so really perched uh, the, the vast majority of the opposition in China. And right. he has just been made uh, president for life, basically, or equivalent to president for life. And he really isn't under that much pressure. And those those, those demonstrations were were uh, symbolic rather than than massively effective in, in pushing against the regime. Yeah. Um, I but, think, for, I think that, for those of us who don't know an awful lot about the internal workings of China, they were just a bit surprising because you didn't think that's what you would ever see. Oh, that's the thing. There are lots and lots of um, demonstrations in China, always. But it's, uh, it was a bit different because of COVID and the fact that people hadn't been out of their houses and they hadn't been mm. demonstrating. But almost every year, there, well, in fact, every year up until COVID, there were tens and tens of thousands of mass demonstrations across China. They're very good at demonstrating. And the Communist Party know that, uh, that they can allow that without too much threat to the, the survival of their regime. Yeah. OK. Um, so the, 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 the trip to China, I think, was cancelled by the US, wasn't it? So what happens now? Good question. Uh, and <laughs> I think on the Chinese side, on the Chinese side, uh, they need to work out what was going on. I, I don't believe this was uh, linked uh, uh, to the uh, Communist Party central command saying, oh, well, let's put a weather balloon up. I, I honestly think that as many commentators have said it was a cock up by someone doing something uh, which has interfered with their Chinese strategy, which is definitely to get better relations with America. The Americans put on a big restriction of technology chips in the autumn which is going to have a big impact on uh, China's ability to create more advanced weaponry, to more advanced machinery, and to keep their economy going. And they need to get America to stop basically putting uh, putting them in the box, which is what many people in America want to do. Uh, not that many people in China would admit they've got weaknesses like that, but they, they really do. Right. And so having this, having this balloon come up and uh, leading to more negative headlines in America and in the West about China, uh, and seeing that their, their chance for Blinken to uh, come over and meet with President Xi and to get things a bit more on an even keel, that's all gone up in smoke now for the time being. So what happens next? Uh, I think most likely China will do some internal uh, digging to find out who cocked up. Uh, the Americans will use this as yet more evidence that China's not playing straight back with them. And we will see yet uh, more bad relations between the two countries fester until somehow uh, yeah, another meeting does happen and hopefully more th more positive light can be put on mm. on the relationship after that. They may not see um, 
Uh, Liz Truss is particularly important in the world uh, scheme of things, but she seems to be sort of rattling the cage a little bit today as well, talking to uh, uh, various Tory party members about how she thinks Rishi Sunak should be taking a harder line with China. Um, what, what, how would you say British relations are with China right now? Well, uh, they, <clears throat> they being the, the Chinese Communist Party, are trying to work out exactly where Rishi Sunak uh, stands because uh, there are mixed messages from his camp. Some saying that uh, sometimes he's saying that they want to have uh, a harder relationship and he used the, the phrase systemic competitor and a systemic threat to, to British interests and values. But at the same time, uh, I think that there are a lot of people having his, bending his ear about the need for greater... Uh, economic cooperation and, and actually on the face of it there is a lot to be gained from cooperation with China not just from basic economics but also climate change fighting etc so um, he is caught between a, a rock and a hard place in many ways but I think that his, his instinct is that we need to be much more uh, re- respectful of Chinese power mm. and uh, sorry that's the wrong phrase not uh, suspicious perhaps of Chinese power and make sure that they don't um, use their own influence to, to undermine British values and interests. But at the same time, there does seem to be a, a wing uh, in the Conservative Party, uh, especially, who wants us to de chinify completely. And there are many analysts who would say that that would be unnecessarily uh, restrictive and actually cause a lot of problems, especially in the economy, if we were to have no relations with China whatsoever. No, of course. Good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Sam Olson, the uh, host of What China Wants, the podcast. Uh, we were talking about uh, that balloon that they shot down over in the US, but also um, about future relations that uh, are going on between the US, Britain and China, of course, as well. Coming up, we'll take some calls. We've got loads of your messages to take as well, and I'll read some out. Also, a bit of a Matt Hancock update for you as well. This is Talk TV. Fast Talk, Street Talk, Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Ian Collins here from 1 o'clock, Vanessa Feltz from 4, of course, Jeremy Carl from 7, Piers Morgan from 8, The Talk from 9, uh, which I'm on tonight, uh, and then it's first edition from 10, of course. So much going on here at Talk TV and an incredible week last week with lots and lots of very, very big figures uh, being interviewed through our uh, relatively new channel here and uh, with some success as well. How about this from um, somebody who doesn't give a name, unfortunately. Good morning, Mike. I recently had my cataract done at a private hospital paid for by the NHS. The organisation was incredible. The treatments were spot on and I could not fault anything. The consultant who treated me uh, said, whatever you do, do not go to the hospital. It'll be cancelled. It'll be moved. It'll never be done. And I think that is something that people are beginning to realise now that if you do uh, have a scheduled operation with the NHS, there's a pretty good chance that it might be cancelled anyway, uh, even if there is isn't an actual strike going on. We're going to talk to Annabel Denham, um, head of communications at the IEA, very shortly about the striking uh, workers who are currently on strike today. Uh, certainly, the Royal College of Nursing out today, as as well uh, the United members from the NHS as well. Many of them um, paramedics, many of them um, uh, doing other jobs inside of the NHS as well. Before we talk to Annabel, let's go live now to Guy's Hospital uh, here in London. Holly Hudson, Talk TV's reporter, is there for us on the picket line. Holly, very good afternoon to you. Very good afternoon to you, Mike. Yes, I'm here, as you say, on the picket line. This is the biggest strike in the NHS's history. More than a third of hospital trusts 
are involved. We'll see some sort of industrial action today. 73 in total, walking out for 12 hours. These guys behind me have been here since 7.30 a.m. You can hear the support there, the beeps of passing cars. Um, and the key difference today, Mike, of course, is that for the first time, ambulance workers are coinciding with nurses, joining forces, so paramedics, call handlers, ambulance workers and nurses all walking out today in what is set to cause what NHS leaders are saying is the worst disruption yet across the board to services. Tens of thousands of routine operations, non-urgent procedures are to be affected. We're told, of course, that urgent care, emergency care, cancer treatment will continue, that that is exempt promises from the unions on that. But with 10,000 ambulance workers, members of GMB and Unite walking out, contingency plans have had to be put in place. The army drafted in to support those services. And the current advice is to only call 999 if it is a life-threatening emergency such as a cardiac arrest. Now, of course, the blame game between the government and the unions continues. The government saying that this disruption, this deadlock uh, is all down to them, that this could have been avoided, that their current pay offer of 4.5% is indeed fair and that they're creating a postcode lottery of care for patients. But the unions, these guys behind me here, will tell you that the fact that they are out here, the fact that this is the biggest strike in the NHS's 75-year history is a sobering realisation of just how far they've been pushed. Thank you very much indeed. Holly Hudson there, Talk TV's reporter outside of Guy's Hospital. Um, everything is always, of course, not quite what it seems, because what we hear an awful lot about whenever you hear the striking nurses speak or the striking teachers speaking uh, or the striking um, RMT drivers or the striking ASLEF drivers, the RMT workers on the, on the trains, it's always about pain conditions, right? One of the things they never mention is the incredibly good public sector pensions that they all appear uh, to be in receipt of. Let's talk to Annabelle Denham uh, from the IEA. Um, and just before we do that, perhaps let's have a look at some of the strikes that are going on this week as well, because let's remember uh, this is not the only thing that's going on. So this week we've got the Royal College of Nursing, third round of strike action in England and Northern Ireland, ambulance workers joining them as well, coordinated, coordinated by the GMB, more nurses striking tomorrow, um, more physiotherapists as well. Uh, on Wednesday, apparently members of the Environment Agency, whatever that is, and whoever they are, are on strike. Does that mean that uh, the world's going to go to hell in a handcart for a day on Wednesday? Thursday, NHS physiotherapy staff across England. 70,000 members of the University and College Union is another strike of theirs. University staff continue their strike action on Friday. More ambulance workers. I mean, this list goes on and on. I mean, is anybody doing any bloody work at all in the public sector? That's my question. Let's talk to Annabel Denham and find out. Annabel, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. So um, I think you've, you've, you've sort of um, tapped into a rather interesting vein here by um, basically telling us about the pensions in this piece of yours in The Spectator. The pensions in the public sector are really incredibly big and incredibly generous and very much more than anybody in the private sector would ever have a sniff of. That's absolutely right. They're very expensive and very generous. So if you look at data from 2021, it found that the employee pension contributions in the public sector amounted to around 18%, whereas in the private sector, they're around 6%. And you don't hear the union leaders talking about this, no. or at least not volunteering to mention it very often when they're being interviewed uh, about the industrial 
action that is currently ongoing. And I think that that plays quite a large role in the fact that there is such strong public sympathy for the striking workers. We talk a lot about uh, who's got the public on their side between the government, which is pretty unpopular at the moment, uh, and the unions and the union leaders. And I, I just wonder if people were made fully aware of how generous these public sector pensions were, that perhaps their views would slightly differ. Now, this isn't to say that nurses uh, you know, should, shouldn't be paid more or that the government shouldn't be doing more to meet some of the demands that they're making. We're all suffering from rising energy prices from the cost of living crisis. But of course, that's not unique to public sector workers and what private sector workers won't have to look forward to, albeit in the distant future, uh, is this lump sum of money because they've had decades of very generous uh, employee con uh, employer contributions, pension contributions. Mm. Um, so I just think that that's you know, worth addressing and particularly when we hear the public sector complaining about real wage growth in the private sector, outstripping that in the public sector, because the picture fundamentally is a bit more complicated uh, you know, than that. And to be fair to the public sector workers, this is about flexibility for them as well. There are a lot of people who will be working in the public sector who would rather have higher pay today mm. in exchange for a smaller pension when it comes to retirement. You might have younger people who've got families who want to put a deposit down on a home or perhaps spend a bit more on childcare because the costs there are uh, exorbitant. Uh, but you'd have other people who are perhaps a bit more stable, who own a home, who've got a small mortgage, who actually would rather be putting more money away for rainy days later in age. So it's not just a question of what fairness between private and public sector workers, but also fairness for public sector workers when it comes to uh, having a more flexible package on the table in negotiations. Absolutely right, because you pick out some very interesting numbers here. The average teacher earns uh, over £42,000 in 2021, but they're also benefiting from an employer pension contribution of nearly 24%, which is worth an additional £10,000 a year. A nurse, meanwhile, on a headline wage of 35000 a year, actually receives a total package equivalent to almost 62000 you know, they talk all the time, don't they, about how, oh, well, we haven't had a real terms rise in a long time. We've got, you know, a real terms actual pay cut because even though we got 8% last year, actually inflation is running at 10. You know, there's an awful lot of smoke and mirrors going on here. And I mean, nurses in particular, you know, that's a large amount of money that they've actually got added on as a pension. And also, as far as I understand it, if you're in the public sector, you can retire a lot earlier than if you are in the private sector as well, right? Yes, that's right. I mean, I do agree with potentially being able to retire earlier and tap into your pension earlier, especially for people who might know. Well, I don't. Not if, it, not if I'm paying well, for it. Well, what about people who know that they're going to pop their clogs perhaps sooner uh, than they might be able to draw down on some of uh, some of their pensions? So people who might have congenital heart conditions yeah. or that sort of thing. So again, but that would be in exchange potentially for lower salary earlier uh, in life, it's all about presenting public sector workers with the exact same trade-offs that workers in the private sector are faced mm. with and letting them make a decision about whether they'd like higher pay today in exchange for a lower pension down the line. And yes, you're right. To, I tried to draw out some uh, figures to draw out some comparisons there between uh, teachers and the amount that they're getting today and the amount that the, they're having contributed into their pensions for nurses as well, which again is far, far surpasses that uh, being received by private sector workers yeah. and it's you know simply that something that we don't hear about and of course teachers themselves at £42,000 a year on average are worth earning around £10,000 more than the national 
average salary. So I'm afraid these people, generally speaking, are not being badly paid. It's just that some of the benefits, as I say, are locked away in the not too distant future. And again, you know, nurses, I think we place a huge moral value on nurses as well. We should. They work uh, long hours. They were on the coalface during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Very difficult, challenging circumstances. But again, if you look at salaries after graduation, one year after graduation, then nurses are around the fourth highest paid, um, or nursing is the degree that will lead to the salary that's around the fourth highest paid. So certainly at that entry level, they're not they're not badly paid relative to other workers in the economy. No, of course. And, uh, you know, the problem as well for, for um, the, the people who are trying to work out who's telling the truth in this dispute um, is that we know that some of the nursing union uh, representatives are slightly economical shall we say, with their truth, talking about how, you know, a lot of nurses have to use food banks. I don't believe that for a minute. Eating scraps from hospital uh, plates from patients inside of wards, which is a claim that was made by the, the woman who runs uh, the Royal College of Nursing. Also, uh, not, not only do they say they haven't any real terms pay rises, but they also don't mention the fact that they get an awful lot of other good discounted sort of access to various different things. Rishi Sunak, when he was talking to Piers Morgan last week, explained how they get bursaries paid for, they get all sorts of discounts for all manner of other, you know, government aid that they can get their hands on. They get discounts for buying property. They get discounts in various shops. You know, they don't mention any of this for the cost of living that they complain has gone up so much. No, and again, it's a question of flexibility that isn't necessarily being provided to public sectors. My view is that most people would rather be given uh, cash than they would be given stuff or at least be given the choice of having cash instead of stuff. Um, You're right that any politician who dares stick their head above the parapet and talk about, you know, whether nurses are really having to use food banks. I think a couple of years ago, a claim was made that that teachers or nurses were having to live in sheds, live in their Mm. cars. Um, And we then saw Simon Clark and Brendan Clark Smith suggest that perhaps they needed to address their budgeting and they were absolutely lambasted uh, across the media, uh, in Westminster, across social media um, for daring to say so. So obviously it's an issue that very few politicians are are daring to come and, and, and speak out about. And I think when you when it comes to some of the the myths or some of the masking that we're seeing from the unions. What about the question of uh, whether they're going to be improving service in Mm. response to higher wages, whether they're looking at ways in in which they can improve productivity, particularly rail sector workers who, let's not forget, were propped up to the tune of around £14 billion during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, They didn't necessarily have to work, but their jobs and their salaries were protected. Um, And here they are demanding inflation busting pay rises and not offering any uh, productivity improvements in return. So that's another area that I think the government needs to be a little bit bolder and try and address and try and bring to the table. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Very fascinating piece, Annabelle. Thank you very much indeed. Annabelle Denham there writing about what striking workers don't tell you about their public sector pay. And what it is, uh, is that there's a lot more of it than they're making out that there's a huge pension contribution, thousands and thousands of pounds a year added to their salaries. And of course, they don't also tell you about how easy it is for them uh, to get pay rises despite actually not doing anything more than continuing in the same job. And they keep saying, oh yeah, but we haven't had a real terms pay rise for years. Well, they did. They had one last year. It's as simple as that, I'm afraid. This is Talk TV. 
Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.